Let me tell you about Claude. Claude describes themselves as helpful, harmless and honest. They can tell a joke. They can write you an essay, write poems, draw up a business plan. Claude's really, really useful to have around. If I ask Claude to do something, Claude goes away and comes back with some interesting responses. And that's Jack Clark. He's one of the co-founders of Anthropic, the AI company that created Claude. As you may have guessed, Claude is a chatbot, one of many in the wave of AI systems that have totally changed the way that people think about artificial intelligence in the last year. So I think the reason why everyone's become so obsessed about AI is that for many years, getting language models to do anything useful was kind of like a parlor trick that only a small number of experts could do. But only recently did it kind of break through this barrier from science curiosity to, wow, this is incredibly useful and also easy for me to use as someone who has no familiarity with the technology. But the thing about AI systems like ChatGPT and Claude is that they sometimes do things that nobody expected. Language models for years have not really had a sense of humor. Humor is obviously quite a subtle and shocking thing. And I remember one day at Anthropic, a new model came off a production line and someone said, Claude can tell jokes now. And then we all got quite excited and discovered Claude had now gained this ability to show some form of humor, which was making us all chuckle. Now, you might not think that your chatbot unexpectedly telling jokes sounds too worrying. But what if your chatbot started developing abilities that you really didn't want it to have? More recently, we tried to look at how well Claude could be used for a misuse case. In our case, it was bioweapons. And we discovered that Claude was more capable than we'd thought. It turned out that as well as having a sense of humor, Claude was also very good at telling you how to build a bioweapon. The company is cagey about exactly what kind of weapon Claude was able to unearth. But Clark told me that Anthropic considered it a national security issue. Which begs the question, if even the AI's creators are surprised by the skills it picks up, if even they are alarmed by the harm that it could do, why are they building it at all? I think of it a little like we're in the 17th century and someone dropped a petrol-powered vehicle in a field. It has petrol in it and the keys in it and we can drive it, but we don't really know what makes it go. This is Tectonic from the Financial Times. I'm Madhumita Mergia. And I'm John Thornhill. Over the last year, rapid developments in artificial intelligence have led to fears about the existential risks it poses. So in this season of Tectonic, we're asking whether we're really getting closer to reaching superintelligent AI. And if so, how worried we should be. In this episode, what do the multi-billion dollar companies building human-level AI really want? And what kind of vision of the future are they putting forward? So let's talk about some of the companies that are dominating this field of AI. Who are the major companies leading this field? So really leading the pack, I think, at the moment is OpenAI, which was founded by Sam Altman, funded originally by Elon Musk, although now its biggest investor is Microsoft. There's, of course, also Google, which owns DeepMind. Meta has a team that's working on it. And these, these are really the dominant companies in the space today. 
we also now have some of the big tech companies in China working to develop AI really quickly. And then you have a range of startups all across the world that are coming into the fray to now challenge these bigger fish. Where does Anthropic fit into this picture? So Anthropic is one of the startups, but they're incredibly well funded. Um, And they're also particularly interesting because it, it was founded by three researchers, including Jack Clark, whom we've spoken to, who used to work at OpenAI. But they decided to part ways with the company so formed Anthropic as a breakaway. They haven't been very explicit about the reasons for the split, but they have intimated that they wanted to build something that designed safety at the heart of AI systems, which they clearly didn't feel OpenAI was doing in in the way that they visualised. And what are OpenAI and DeepMind and Anthropic promising AI will be able to do if everything goes well? So the vision is pretty utopian. The idea is that something with general intelligence would be able to solve these intractable problems that we've been grappling with in areas of climate change or energy use or medicine, for example. But also in the nearer term, that it will be able to do a much wider range of general tasks compared to the chatbots that we have today. Here's Anthropic's Jack Clark again. We heard from him at the start of this episode. I think the direction of travel is that over time, you've seen AI systems go from being specialized and built for very specific tasks to being increasingly general. You have a single text interface that can do translation, storytelling, code writing, analysis of scientific documents. And these systems are also beginning to be able to reason about images and audio as well. And for this reason, he calls it an everything machine. The idea would be that you eventually have this multi-purpose system doing tasks end-to-end. You could eventually have an AI running a business. If you have systems that are generally intelligent and able to do a broad variety of things, I could run a t-shirt company and I talk to my AI system and it handles logistics and shipping and customer service and bookkeeping and everything else. It's easy to see how this sort of everything machine could be incredibly useful. It could positively transform the world of work and the way our economy functions as a whole. It could potentially speed up any boring task you've ever had to do, or maybe just eradicate the boring tasks altogether. At the same time, it's exactly that sort of generalized AI system that could do real damage. Because the challenge of an everything machine is that an everything machine can do everything. And so that's going to encompass a range of potential misuses or harms which you need to build techniques for ensuring, you know, don't come to pass. So, for example, to go back to the point Clark made earlier, an everything machine might be able to come up with chemical ingredients needed to make a bioweapon. It could cause havoc. It's worth remembering, I suppose, why we can't control these systems. They're basically black boxes. Yeah, all of this is really hard to guard against because the inner workings of these programs like ChatGPT and Claude, they remain a kind of mystery. These AI chatbots are trained on tons and tons and tons of data taken from the internet mainly. And humans can make tweaks to what information goes in and how it's weighted, but they don't have that much control over what comes out. Clark says that Anthropic is trying to change this. The first approach is to try to look inside the machine. And so we've done a huge amount of work on a research program called Mechanistic Interpretability, which you can think of as being like sticking an AI system in an MRI machine. 
And when the AI system is operating, you're looking at what parts of it are lighting up inside the machine and how those relate to the behavior of the system. The second thing Anthropic is doing, just like all its competitors, is trying to make AI safer by implanting some explicit values directly into their software. Our system, Claude, uses an approach called constitutional AI, which sees us at Anthropic write a literal constitution for the system. The constitution is made up of things like the UN Declaration of Human Rights and, and funnily enough, Apple's Terms of Service and a few other things. And that lets our system have a slightly greater degree of security and safety with regard to adhering to those principles. And we've made the principles clear. So when we talk to policymakers and they say, what are the values of your system? We can say, I'm glad you asked. It's this constitution plus some combination with the user and the interaction. But Maddo, clearly these guardrails still don't get around the problem you talked about at the beginning of the episode. Claude is designed to align with human values, but it still comes up with some nefarious uses. It's already shown it's capable of instructing people on how to produce agents of chemical warfare, for example. Right, which is why I asked Clark, why build these systems at all? Well, it's a great question, and it's the right question to ask. Another way you should think about this is, why build an incredibly good teacher if the teacher taught a really bad person that does harm? And just to sort of push on your question, teachers are incredibly useful and they have a huge societal benefit. How do you stop teachers and teaching tools teach so-called, you know, bad people or enable bad people? And the answer there is you use a lot of the existing societal infrastructure, ranging from the law to institutions to various forms of checks to mitigate that potential downside because the benefits are so, so significant. So basically, he's saying it's worth developing this everything machine, despite the risks and despite the existential threats it might pose. Correct. Jack acknowledges that there are real risks, but this is why Anthropic has been quite vocal about calling for government intervention. Um, They feel that regulation could mitigate some of those risks. Now, I should say that this means that they're lobbying for the type of regulation that they do want. And increasingly, it looks like the next step in the AI debate will be about how we regulate this technology. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. So, Madhu, we've been talking about how an everything machine, artificial general intelligence that can do everything a human can and more, might pose existential risks. And companies like Anthropic are talking about regulation to make safer AI. Still, there's a lot of debate about what this regulation should look like. Right, so I called up someone called Dan Hendricks about this. He's the founder of the Centre for AI Safety. They're this independent think tank out of California, And Dan spends his days thinking about how these harmful AI situations might play out. 
like AI used in the workplace. You can imagine a scenario where that might go wrong. Over time, people notice that AIs are doing these tasks more quickly and effectively than any human could. So it's convenient to give them more jobs with less and less supervision. Eventually, you may reach the point where we have AI CEOs. They're running companies because they're much more efficient than other people. There's willingness to do this sort of thing. For instance, the large Chinese video game company NetDragon Websoft announced that they're interested in having an AI CEO. If we start giving a lot of the decision-making power to these AI systems, humans are having less and less influence. Competitive pressures would accelerate the expansion of AI use. Other companies, which would be faced with the prospect of being outcompeted, would feel compelled to follow suit just to keep up. So I'm concerned about them getting the power all voluntarily and then humans becoming something more like a second-class species where AIs are basically running the show. In fact, we're already seeing a version of this competitive push happening within the AI industry itself, even when tech companies are insisting that safety is something they're worried about. The issue is that even if they think this is a big concern, Unfortunately, what drives a lot of their behavior is that they need to race uh, to build AI more quickly than other people. It's kind of like with nuclear weapons. Nobody wants you know, thousands upon thousands of nuclear weapons. We'd all prefer a world without them. But each country is incentivized to build up a nuclear stockpile. Dan says that the AI genie is out of the bottle and there's no way to put it back inside. But he believes that governments can manage the risk. He's working on policy to counter potential AI harms. An easy one might be focusing on the computer chips that make training these systems possible. For instance, with malicious use, you could imagine doing something further like export controls of chips, you know, keeping track of where are these chips going. So some type of compute governance could be fairly important for making sure that chips don't fall into the hands of, say, rogue states or like uh, terrorist groups. Another vision for an AI future might be one where the onus is on the companies themselves to deal with the mess. At the moment, a company like OpenAI or Anthropic isn't legally liable if someone spreads spammy messages using their chatbot, or even worse, if someone makes mustard gas with it. Hendrix thinks that should probably change. Legal liabilities for AI developers seems very sensible. If Apple develops a new iPhone, they have to submit that for review before it can be delivered to a mass market. There's no such thing for AI. Seems like a fairly basic request for a technology that's becoming this societally relevant. I can see how this would be very complex at an international level. It requires an extraordinary amount of understanding and coordination from government leaders to regulate AI globally. And in the UK, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak tried to do as much at the Bletchley Park AI Safety Summit recently. And it was a pretty unique thing to see US officials sitting alongside Chinese officials discussing regulation. But we should say that not everyone is so keen on the regulation of AI. In the previous episode of the series, we heard from Yan LeCun, the meta-AI scientist and one of the pioneers of artificial intelligence. And a great enthusiast of artificial general intelligence. Certainly not a doomer. Exactly. Lecun thinks advances in this technology could be massively beneficial. And he thinks that the claims about the existential risks of AI are preposterous. Today's technology 
are trained with data that is publicly accessible on the internet. And those systems currently are not really capable of inventing anything. So they're not going to tell you how to build a bioweapon in ways that you can't already do by using a search engine for a few minutes. In other words, if someone really wanted to build a chemical weapon, for example, they can already do so with a Google search. So why are we getting so worked up about the potential for AI to spew out that information? But there's another, more principled objection that Lacan has about companies that are calling for government intervention, particularly when it comes to regulation that would limit the advancement of the underlying technology. I think regulating research and development in AI is incredibly counterproductive. There is kind of this idea somehow, which for some people stems from a bit of a superiority complex that say, oh, you know, it's okay if we do AI because we know what we're doing, but it's not okay for everyone to have access to it because people can be trusted. And I think that's incredibly arrogant. Lacan is worried that leading AI companies are going to be too controlling and paternalistic with this revolutionary technology. Part of this has to do with the fact that AI is becoming increasingly closed off. OpenAI, Anthropic and DeepMind all keep their systems highly secretive. We don't even know what training data they use to build these models. Now, these companies believe that secrecy is necessary to prevent potential misuse. But Meta and Lacan himself are big proponents of what are called open-source AI models. That means that other researchers can use the underlying systems to develop their own AI products. I mean, the reason why we have the internet today is because the internet runs on open source software. And it's not because companies didn't want closed platforms for various reasons, including security. A closed version of the internet would be easier to protect against cyber attacks, but that would be throwing the baby with the bathwater. And in the end, the sort of decentralized open platform that the internet is today won out. So Lacan thinks that AI should follow the open source principles that helped grow the early internet. And he's sceptical about the existential threat posed by AI. He's not the only one to be doubtful about those hypothetical long-term risks. Emily Bender is a professor of computational linguistics at the University of Washington who writes frequently about AI. She agrees rapid developments in the technology pose risks, but it's not existential risk she's worried about. In fact, she thinks that all the focus and spending of the big tech companies on existential risk are a big distraction from more immediate problems. So I can't talk about whether it's deliberate or not, but certainly it's beneficial to them in that way to have the attention focused on these fake fantasy scenarios of existential risk. Is it not worth at least putting a small amount of money into the possibility that these AI systems could become so powerful that they endanger humanity? It would be extremely low on my list of priorities. I can think of probably a hundred things if I sat here that are not getting funded right now that would be much better uses of that money. The issues that Bender is worried about include synthetic media or deep fakes, like a fabricated video of a politician, which is already possible using AI tech. Experts say that women are subject to the majority of deep fake crimes. It's the doubt that is cast on authentic video and audio. She's also highlighted long-standing issues with automatic decision-making systems, the kind of AI programs used by governments to decide who gets welfare benefits. Parliamentary probe found that tax officials wrongly accused some 10,000 families of fraud over childcare subsidies. Or by health services to decide who gets an organ transplant. Significant racial bias in an algorithm used by hospitals across the nation. We've already seen high-profile cases where this technology has been damaging and discriminatory. 
and Bender says those concerns are being brushed aside. I think it's about keeping the people in the picture, thinking about who's being impacted in terms of having social benefits taken away by an automatic decision system, in terms of having non-consensual porn being made about them through a text-to-image system, or going all the way back to 2013 when Professor Latanya Sweeney documented how if you type in an African-American-sounding name in a Google search, there was this one company that was advertising background checks, and it would say things like, has so-and-so been arrested way more frequently for African-American-sounding names than for white European-sounding names. What's going on there? Well, there's a reproduction of biases that has an immediate impact on people. If you imagine someone is applying for a job and somebody searches them on Google and gets this suggestion that maybe this person is dangerous, that can have an impact on someone's career. Bender says bias, discrimination and societal inequity are the areas we need to regulate. And that's very different from what the big AI companies are proposing. We need regulators to step up to protect rights. Um, I think they should prioritize input from people who are affected by these systems over the ideas of the people who are building the systems. Sometimes there's a trope that only the people building it understand it well enough to regulate it, and that is completely misguided because regulations need to look at the impact on society of the system and not the inner workings of the system. So, John, what do you make of Emily Bender's argument? Well, as she described so eloquently, I think there are immediate concerns that we have with the use of AI that regulators need to address. But where I differ from her, I think, is that I think it's worth considering some of these bigger, longer-term existential risks, which I think can be real issues. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, companies are focused on existential risk. Some might say it's a convenient way to distract or avoid looking at these problems. But I think it's because, they, you know, they're fundamentally research organisations and the existential risk is still an open research question, which is why they're interested in that. I think the more immediate risks we can already regulate within the agencies and the infrastructure we have to regulate the rest of technology and industry today, for example, in medicine or in the financial services, you know, we could use narrow regulation to address the immediate risks. We don't really need AI companies to help us figure that out. It's interesting to think about where this regulation is going to go. I mean, there are clearly a number of countries that are now getting very serious about regulation. I think the Chinese are in the lead on this and are really cracking down in some areas in the use of AI. Ironically, one of the places where the legislation will take the longest to introduce is the UK, which held the Bletchley Park Conference. It doesn't have such specific plans for regulating AI in the way that other countries are now doing. Should we be worried, do you think, by the fact that the industry is having such a strong say in the regulation? Well, I'd say it's not new. I think there's always been regulatory capture, as we call it, in all different areas from, you know, food and drugs to tobacco and advertising and so on. And so, you know, the tech companies aren't unique in trying to influence and have a say in the rules that will govern them. Um, But I do think that they hold a lot of concentration of power that is unique, particularly when it comes to knowledge and resources in this space, because there's just such little academic, independent research that's happening on the cutting edge of AI development, because it does seem to require so much money, infrastructure and chips and so on. The frontier level research currently is being done inside these closed for-profit companies largely. Um, And so they hold all the knowledge that comes along with that. And I think that is quite concerning. 
And several of those companies have an explicit mission to achieve artificial general intelligence, and that gives the sense, I think, that human-level AI is inevitable. But there's a question of whether we might be all wrong about that. What if we're overestimating whether we can attain artificial general intelligence? We are being fooled by our own ability to interpret the language into thinking there's more there than there is. And I don't blame people who encountered it. I put the blame with OpenAI, who are overselling the technology and saying it's something that it isn't. More from Emily Bender next time, here on Tectonic from the Financial Times. Our senior producer is Edwin Lane. The producer is Josh Gabbard-Dion. Manuela Saragosa is executive producer. Sound design and engineering by Samantha Giovinco and Breen Turner. Original music by Metaphor Music. The FT's global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. This is the second episode in this season of Tectonic on super intelligent AI. We'll be back over the next four weeks with more. Get every episode as it lands by subscribing to Tectonic on your usual podcast platform. And in the meantime, we've made some articles free to read on FT.com, including my recent magazine piece on the NHS algorithm that decides who receives organ transplants. Just follow the links in the show notes.